becoming you beyond deconstruction because deconstruction isn't the end goal living a vibrant soul aligned life is welcome back to becoming you beyond deconstruction my name is florence okusoku And in today's episode, we are going back into the Becoming series and talking to spiritual teacher Lurie Kimberly. Lurie believes that by looking into your darkest and deepest fears and discomforts around God, sex and money, you can find the key to stepping into your power. She openly shares her journey of not just deconstructing, but returning back to her sacred self and how she enables other women to do so by reconnecting to their body's wisdom through the erotic. This is a really powerful conversation. Uh, A little warning that there are some elements of explicit language in today's episode. If you want to connect with Lurie, you can do so via the links in today's episode notes. I'll see you on the inside. My name is Lori, and I am an erotic spirituality teacher, and my work is all about helping people come into a place of healing through the power of the erotic. And I know a lot of times when people hear the word erotic, they immediately think about sex, Mm. but the erotic is not just simply the sexual. It has been reduced to the sexual within our modern society, but if we really look at what the ancient philosophers were saying, and even modern philosophers, the erotic within mystical practices has been this yearning union with the self, with the divine, and the world around us. And I believe that when we tap into the erotic, this whole process of awakening, this whole process of connecting back to ourselves becomes so much more powerful Mm. and liberating and freeing. And so my work is, yes, of course, it's about healing your relationship with sexuality and your body, but it's also about healing your relationship with trusting yourself again and connecting back to spirituality in a way that liberates you. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there. It's also juicy. And, you know, the thing that kind of stands out to me as a woman Um, as somebody who was more or less raised in the church and my mom um, is Catholic my dad was um, Methodist but it was my mom who was like the really strong um, I guess Christian influence being at church every Sunday without fail even if you're on your sick bed you go to to church and my dad was my dad was and is very much a, a truth seeker Um, opens the door to anybody to have a good discussion about spiritual things and I got a lot of that from him but at the same time I recognize how the Christian influence has impacted me as a woman in relation to 
embracing my body, embracing sexuality. So when you said that, that what came to me is this idea of kind of like purity and modesty and kind of repression and restraint and, you know, just the word no or the word don't, you know, big red sign, no. So, yeah, that's really great that you help people reconnect with their body and um, know that the body is good and sacred. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the erotic, the word the erotic scares a lot of people because mm. they're like, no, 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 that, 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 that's, that's a no-go area. Yeah. And that is so deep in our conditioning, mm. society, religion. And I think the fact there's that resistance to it is oftentimes the indicator of where we need to lean in as well. Mm. Because if that's where we're afraid of going, there's a reason we're afraid of going there. There's a reason talking about, I even find talking about vibrators and condoms and consent. People are totally comfortable with that. That's fun. The moment I say the erotic, they're like, uh, I don't know if I can do that. And that's where all the information lies. Yeah, I mean, it's really funny that you said that because, you know, when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, it was it was huge within the Christian circle. I saw so many posts about it um it was really interesting obviously when that came out I wasn't where I am now um but as I said it's still something that I I feel as a woman who has been Christianized for such a long time um I'm really interested in knowing how you have come to where you are now so it was an interesting little journey. So I was married and I got married when I was in college. I was a junior in college to a man who was going to be a pastor, uh, Puri ring, the whole nine yards, everything right. And we'd been married for about five years and he had started attending seminary and we were living in a seminary that was... I think very liberal to a lot of conservative Christian standards, but I had just spent uh, about a year and a half working in the Philadelphia school district and working at a theater in Philadelphia and sort of surrounding myself outside of this very conservative bubble that I had been in since I started going to college. And I, there was a part of me that was, had been, cracked open by leaving that bubble where I saw that there was so much possibility and so much more out in the world that I was mm. discovering and experiencing. And then living back in this seminary was suffocating Ooh, to me. Oh, yeah. 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 That's the word that came up for me. That must have been suffocating. <laughs> it was really suffocating. And there were, it was very much being presented with, there were three options for me as a woman who was married to a pastor I could have his babies. I could get a really stable administrative job supporting him so I could financially support his ministry. Or I could get a degree alongside him so that I would be his partner in his ministry. But I was studying theater. I didn't want to do any of those things. Um, I wanted to be a starving artist. And so I was really stuck where my desires and my passions and everything in my body that I longed to experience 
I was being told no, that that was selfish, mm-hmm. that that was wrong, mm-hmm. that I shouldn't just be doing what I felt like I wanted to do. I should be doing what I was with my duty. Oh, and it, 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 it was horrific. Yeah. And it, the tension just built completely up where I just got to a moment, like, fuck this shit. I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. And I decided that I was going to find out what it meant to be a woman who loved God in its truest sense. Because if every fiber of my being longed for what these people were telling me I needed to be, then this couldn't be God. And that's what started me out on this journey. And I went almost directly into the world of goddess worship. And it was super on the DL. Nobody could know. My now ex-husband knew, but like, I wasn't really even telling him. I was like, I'm just interested in researching goddesses. But I was was joining Facebook groups and I was joining communities where we would just get together and say things like what we desired. And we would talk about like that our pussies were holy. And we would say things like, oh, may the goddess bless you. And there was something that rippled inside me that felt like it was being freed Mm. the moment, Mm. the moment I started practicing this. Yeah. So that's kind of how the journey started. Mm. And what ended up happening was eventually um, we got divorced. And ultimately, when I was in theology school, no, this is before theology school, I was introduced to the writings of Audre Lorde, who wrote the text, The Uses of the Erotic. And so this is a foundational text for all of my programs. And I have um, my clients read this before I coach with them. And she was talking about how the erotic is this sacred energy that exists on a feminine plane that we have been disconnected from and has been reduced to the pornographic. And this began my process of trying to understand what erotic spirituality was. Mm -hmm. And so I finished that master's program, went into another's master's program studying feminist theology and just essentially how has religion worked to disconnect women from themselves. And that is now, and the journey continues, I guess. But now I help other women with that same thing. So that is... That is so amazing. You did two masters um, to try and kind of feed this hunger that you had to to know more and to kind of uh, reaffirm that you were on the right path or that, you know, this feeling inside of you wasn't wrong. Because I think that's kind of what you were saying you you were in a sense made to feel like your desires were unacceptable that they were um selfish um and that your duty as a wife lay in making the world easier for your husband basically (laughs) yes and I've joked before that sometimes I think I got a master's degree just so I could beat someone in a debate and But I think that there is this sense of, that I experienced this sense of, no, you're wrong. And because everyone else around me was in seminary and studying the Bible and were holy people, like they must be right. Mm. And even the books I was reading, um, written by, you know, probably very common books that everyone else was reading, Hay House, published Mm. by Hay House, Spiritual Mm. Teachers. 
um, who are really smart, but these were not academic writers. Mm. It was reinforcing to all the trained seminarians in my life that I was not following like a logical, appropriate, respectable path. So it was funny to me that the moment then that I got a theology degree and I was able to actually research some of this stuff that is in more pop spiritual things and be like, well, what's the truth? Where's the truth there? And like, what's correct? And find out that at the core of what they're saying, there's definitely some facts that are incorrect, but mm. at the core of what everyone is saying is that mm. like, you are holy is not a crazy idea. In fact, mm. it's something that is old and ancient and has been known for a really long time that I very much think that it is within the space of the enlightenment that we Mm. have forgotten about like our sacred connection to the earth Mm. probably earlier but that's what I think the nail was in the coffin Mm, so much there so much there I mean you mentioned the word enlightenment and it's so funny Mm -hmm. because the word enlightenment it feels like you know it's enlightening right it feels like you know it's an up level (laughs) yeah it was an up level in the sense of we learned more and we you know we were we were just rolling with discovery and invention after invention but it definitely it took away something it was like we gave up something in order to be enlightened with this information um and there's a part of me that feels like okay yeah this is just the way that the uh, the kind of evolution flows you know we had the dark ages and we had enlightenment and you know there's the next level that's coming and it I feel like it takes us to stand in our holy no I feel like that's what you're saying like this kind of like deep birthing (laughs) no you know there's just something not right here um to to kind of shift us into this next phase and you were you were faced with all these people around you that were still trying to to hold you back because your your ideas weren't fitting in with the logic of you know what was around you at that time right yeah and I think I love what you're saying how like we had this period and then we moved into the enlightenment and now we're moving into something new yeah and I think like I'm very happy we had the enlightenment in a lot of ways I like a lot of the things about the internet and scientific method and you know all these benefits from this movement away from uh well we had the renaissance and the dark ages where we're able to understand the world in a much more complex way it's beautiful one thing that I think we lost was that we began to assume that we could understand everything in our head Mm. and that the earth and that the stars and that the wisdom of our ancestors no longer had anything available to us. Mm-hmm. And that what, and what used, it used to be that witchcraft, mm-hmm. whatever superstition was just the old wives tales. And those are the things that the crazy lady in the woods believes, or it was that mm-hmm. wildness. And then it became, no, the church is the whole superstition. The whole, church is the one that's crazy. But the wisdom of the women in the woods was still considered equally as ridiculous. Mm. We never brought that back. Mm. And I think now what what we're doing, and I, I'm starting to see it happening more and more, mm. is we're starting to understand that that the ancient stuff, the old stuff of our ancestors, was actually had wisdom in it that we chose to forget, and we can mm. reach back and pull it back to us. 
mm. and have it with us mm. now. Mm. Yeah. And that we're going to be better off. We're going to be so much more enlightened. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Just, just pulling back from the past. It's funny because one of the um, other people on, on the series, she's a shamanic practitioner based in the UK. And she mentioned the exact same thing about all this kind of ancestral wisdom that is available to us and as a resource to us. But because, you know, we've been told that it's unholy, it's unsafe, it's demonic, whatever language around it, we kind of like shy away from it. And I just would like to know your thoughts about this as I'm, as I'm saying this. There is this sense in women or in myself that I have experienced as, you know, this kind of a wildness. Um, and I feel that some of the worry is what if this wildness is unleashed and it means that X, Y, Z, you know, that kind of what if then that means X, Y, Z. And that kind of stops people from wanting, because I know you spoke about connecting and reconnecting with the body and, you know, being always in our head. And that programming that happens can often come out like, I feel this stirring, I feel this inside of me, but what if this, whatever it is that I'm feeling, means that, and whatever that meaning that we give it is wrong, means it's bad, is unholy is demonic I would love you to speak yeah. to that well I everyone out always asks me that I get this from all of my clients and the the response I have is okay so what if let's go there mm. what if mm. and the the what if is often first of all very rarely evil mm. it's like it is maybe something that we've classified as bad, right? Mm. Like, mm. well, what if my, my marriage ends? Or what if mm. my, uh, I quit my job and actually go start that business that I'm thinking about starting and then I'm bankrupt? Like, what if? Like, those are like scary things, those yeah. legitimate things to be afraid of. But it's never evil. Mm. Like, no one has ever said, what if I actually do this and then I do burn down villages? Like no, but like no one I've ever interacted with mm. has their true desire rooted in anything that harms mm. anyone. Mm. It's always consistently been scary, legitimately yeah. scary, big desires, but not. And the thing I think that happens oftentimes within, and I love your word, Christianized cultures, because or being Christianized, is that we have this stark distinction between good and evil mm. where evil is just anything that's uncomfortable like like I'm not saying that like there's right like we know things that harm people mm. but it's not just something that harms people it's something that makes us uncomfortable that mm. is uneasy we label it as bad mm. and then at the same mm. time we say like tough it out and don't find like don't enjoy it like don't like it's all suffering and bad mm. whereas instead like what if what if you do experience a valley and that's just another epic part of your story? Mm. And maybe when we go on the journey of our desires, we actually connect to like this epic narrative that we're meant to play out. Sure, things are going to happen that are going to suck. Yeah. But if you 
stay in the bubble and then you choose to follow everything, stuff's going to happen that's going to suck. <laughs> yeah. If you choose to leave the bubble, right? If you choose to leave the bubble and go on this journey of your desires, things are going to happen that are going to suck. Yeah. Like it's going to be uncomfortable, but let's, let's do it in a way that's expanding who you are. Yeah. Not in a yeah. way that is keeping you limited. Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? That does make, that makes so much sense. So what I'm hearing is that you're saying that, you know, we're faced with a choice. Fundamentally, we're faced with a choice. We can stay in the quote unquote safe bubble where people accept us and we're basically, we're not rocking the boat and we might feel uncomfortable in it, or we definitely will feel uncomfortable in it, but um, it's, it's safe in the sense that people are still accepting of us or we perceive that we belong. It's familiar. Or, yeah, it's familiar. Or we can step out of that and actually follow that inner calling, that the pull, the desire that we have and know that because we don't know what's coming, this space is unfamiliar to us. It's probably, well, not probably, definitely going to be uncomfortable. And, you know, there's going to be some rough patches as well, but it's also going to be glorious and beautiful and expansive. Yeah, yeah, we're going to lose control. But I think one of the reasons that we have such a steep, why we have so many systems in our society that feel restrictive is because of this need for control. Yeah. But yeah. we can't control other people. We can't control tomorrow. It's an illusion of control. Yeah. We don't really have control. Why not experience the actual lack of control we have while also riding the wave? It's really interesting that you say that on so many different levels, so many things are coming to my mind. I'm just going to spill it all out and hope that something kind of lands. So um, the word Leviathan, because Leviathan, mm -hmm. I think, was a monster in the Bible, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. um, and yes. it's also um, kind of a, a political or sociological idea of um, we need to be able to control. So that idea of, of, of control um, as well. We, we have police systems and we have all these things in order to control and shape society. But there's, I'm also feeling like there's the idea of unleashing the, the beast or the Leviathan within and not knowing how to, to sit with that feeling of our own, of our own wildness, of our own beast inside of us and, and feeling like we need external structures and systems to protect us from ourselves in case that wild beast is unleashed. And the last thing it reminds me of when I was working within mental health and working with clients who suffered with anxiety and um, just anxiety disorders, a lot of the things around GAD and general anxiety disorder and worry was this idea of losing control. The what if would always be kind of like a dominant thought there an inability to trust yourself, um, to trust, to, to need to even con control your own thoughts. Um, because if you didn't control your thoughts, then you might think a thought and that thought would mean that you were a bad person. So lots and lots of control. And the weird thing was the more they tried to control <laughs> the thinking, the worse happened, the more they became anxious about everything. So there was a lot yeah, there I, love that I just said. 
No, actually, they're two. They're both really connected in my mind because I have general anxiety. And so I get what you're talking about. And one of the things that has been a huge part of my, my healing journey with anxiety, the way I've learned to deal with my anxiety is to get to know my anxiety, Mm. not to try to shut it off, not to try to turn it off, but to get to know it. And I get, I travel, I, Mm. I don't have a permanent home right now. And so I'm often in airports and I get anxiety in airports all the time. Mm. And I have a panic attack where like, I see white, I get, I go into fight or flight. It's bad. But I've learned so much about how to deal with it that I just like me and my anxiety go over and we sit down and we have some tea and we just sit together and I just pause with my anxiety and we, we get to know each other and I find out what she wants to let me know and what, what I need to do. And then I talk to her about how like, no, the plane's not leaving for an hour. We're not actually going to miss it. (laughs) And like all the things that I need to say, say to her, that's the Leviathan as well. Right. Yeah. And the thing about, if we can get biblical for a minute and talk about the gospel and all that stuff, the thing that I really love about the Bible, and even though I'm no longer a Christian, I, you know, studying the Bible as literature was a transformational experience for me mm-hmm. um, in theology school. And the thing that's really interesting about the gospel narrative is that this is a story about God who in that narrative is perfect and all loving, mm-hmm. coming down into the world where love is not, there is no love. It is described as like this place of death. Mm. It is the place of sickness, of disease, of suffering. Mm. And divine love interacts with all this disease and suffering. And by coming at disease and suffering and pain and death and looking it straight into the eye, that is where it's healed. And that is where it comes forward. We often think we're going to deal with our Leviathan by shutting it down and keeping it in a cage. Mm. But the actual truth that I believe is that when we bring that kind of love to ourselves, when we, when that's what I think like being Christ consciousness is what Gnostics talk about is like the Christ consciousness. It's like we bring that kind of love to our darkest parts of ourselves and we allow love to go there. That's when the beast unleashing the beast and actually Mm -hmm. loving it, Mm -hmm. then it can't destroy. It'll actually just simply be resurrected. Yeah. And yeah, that's what happens. So I'm all about owning the beast. Yeah. Like letting it out, letting it scream. And in my programs, we have whole practices where we scream and we throw pillows and we rage and we like let out that wild woman inside yeah. of us yeah. and we get to know her because she, she most often is very happy if she just throws a pillow around the room. <laughs> she really doesn't want to burn anything right? (laughs) She's strong and she's fierce, but, but most often she's coming up because there's an injustice or a lack of love or something wrong where she needs to experience that love. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just, yeah, I totally resonate with what you're saying and agree. And I think the other thing that that kind of touches on is this idea of, um, a lack of self-trust, especially in relation to our own boundaries. Um, I know through my own client work, and even if I just think about um, myself, 
I was in um, a relationship for 16 years with somebody who I was, you know, it was a it was a codependent relationship. And it was in the latter end when they kind of found Christianity and because of their own um, needs, it became very fundamental. And it, it was just it was it was very difficult to live under. So it really I, I felt a need to to make myself smaller, to kind of um, fit into this box in, in order to keep the peace, basically. So by the time the relationship ended, I felt like I couldn't trust myself. You know, I, I, I had contracted myself so, so much that even just an idea of kind of stretching out was like, oh no, you can't do that. What if? And it was, it was even weird stuff. It was like taking scriptures out of, out of, uh, out of context. So about if you look at, if you look at um, a woman, then you've, then you've basically um, committed adultery anyway. So it was like, you can't look at another man. It's not even that. You can't even think that another person is good looking because all of that is just bad and you're a bad person if you do any of that. So it was really, really, really hard for me to trust myself when I first came out of the relationship. I think it took me around a year um, to, to kind of begin to get that ability back. And one of the things I did was I decided that I'm going to watch the whole six Harry Potter, <laughs> six Harry Potter um, movies just because, you know, I want to see, you know, if I can trust myself, um, what's the worst that can happen? I'm going to sit here and I'm going to watch all six Harry Potter movies because that was something that I would never have been able to do in the relationship. And that's something that I want to do for myself now. And that kind of kind of rebellious no I'm not I'm an autonomous person and I believe deep down inside that I can trust myself and this is one way that I'm going to show myself that I can do that and that's that's how it came out yeah yeah Harry Potter I mean that's like I think you describing that is like exactly what I think like that's the wild woman yeah your wild woman wanted to watch six movies in a row <laughs> like it's not <laughs> like something that simple right it's not that she wanted to um go I mean I guess even if someone wants to do this I'm, I'm not against it but like you didn't want to like go off and have like sex with random men all night long or or something like that you were you were wanting to be able to enjoy a movie that is you know essentially a kid's movie although I don't know how old you are, but I feel like a lot of people around our age like grew up with that. And it's like mm. very connected to our childhood. And it's like, that's, there's, that's innocent. Mm. That's so deeply innocent and good and okay. And uh, what I think that the, the other thing that came to mind is, is the, the relationship that Christian culture has with the erotic mm. is that that idea of looking at a man, even if we think he's attractive, because we don't understand the difference between porno pornography mm. and lust mm. and eroticism. 
because we think that when we're attracted to someone, that means we own them or that we can seek to own them instead of appreciating the sacredness of their existence. Mm, yeah, yeah. And that's really what Jesus is talking about in that mm. verse. He's talking mm. about looking at someone with lust in their eyes. Mm. He specifically says the word lust, not attraction, mm. not turn on, not desire. And one of the stories that I read in graduate school, uh, there's a book called The Harlots of the Desert, and it's about these women who were prostitutes and then converted to Christianity and became mystics. And there was a whole movement of asceticism in the early church. And these, there were these groups of women who were doing this. And one of the stories is about this St. Megalia, and she was a prostitute. And in the story, the Bishop Nonas, who was the Pope at the time, like the Bishop of Rome, he sees her walking down the street, scantily clad with all of her servants, and they're drinking wine and laughing together. And all of the men he's with cover their eyes. And the Bishop looks at her and follows her all the way down the road, following her gaze. And then he turns to the man and he goes, didn't her beauty delight you? It delighted me. <laughs> and his response to the idea is that if you cannot look at a creation, he says of God, but I think this goes into any understanding of God mm -hmm. you have, the divine, the, the universe, if you can look, can't look at a creation of God and you claim to love God and not see the beauty of God's creation, and instead see something that you think that you can possess, God's creation, like you think you're able to possess God's creation, what a silly concept for Christians mm. to have ever come up with. Mm. When in the very beginning, like we have this bishop in, I'm don't, not sure, was he 300 AD or something like that, yeah. saying like, you should be able to look at a woman no matter what she's wearing and see the glory of God. Mm. And yeah, that's the erotic. The erotic mm. is when like all the world connects us more deeply to the divine, including our sexuality. Mm. That's really interesting. So seeing beyond, seeing beyond the physical to the essence, to the energy, to the desire. Seeing with, seeing to, with the physical. Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, oh my goodness, that person is beautiful. What are they thinking about? How is their day going? Who are they? And maybe you want to sleep with them, but that's just a part of the beauty of who they are. Yeah. It's not the end. Okay, yeah. So I feel like you're saying that, it goes back to what you were saying about when you see the, erotic and and um sex and porno pornography and it's kind of all mixed into one and you can't kind of separate the the feelings or the thoughts right, that you're right. having so right but there's so much more to it than that it's kind of like you've only been conditioned to see one aspect of it but it's so much more than that is that what you're saying yes yes so Audre Lorde talks about it, how uh, the pornographic is the plastic sensation of what the erotic can be. It's the surface experience. So she's not talking about pornography. Yeah. She's talking about how we look at one another as objects to be owned mm. instead of human souls, divine images of God to be experienced mm. and to be with God with. Mm. 
Uh, uh, and uh, I think that there is something so liberating when we are able to realize that being attracted to someone or someone being attracted to us doesn't, it's not the fullness of the expression uh, of where our sexuality is to stop it at just simply sex and to not connect to that person. And I don't think we even talk about sex and marriage in the Christian world like this. We talk about it like lust is attraction uh, instead of lust is the antithesis or the, the shadow side of attraction. It's uh, the problem uh, part of attraction and attraction is something much more holy. So it feels like a deeper, it's calling for um, a deeper connection, deeper intimacy, a deeper knowing. Mm -hmm. And that'd be really interesting if we could turn that onto ourselves and see what is beautiful and sacred within us. I'm sure that's part of the work that you do. I kind of have a funny feeling that that's part of the work that you do as well. Yeah, it begins there, right? Yeah. yeah, I talk about how when I most often when I ask women what their desires are, they yeah. immediately go to something related to the world. They'll say something like world peace, mm. justice, like goodness for everyone. Mm. And that's a great thing to desire, mm. not smacking that at all. Mm. But unless that, that is not something you're actively on your daily basis working towards creating. It's something you're hoping someday will exist. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah. And we, are, we have so much more power within our own spheres. And when we are able to connect back to ourselves and see ourselves as holy and what and honor our desires, that's when our desires can start to grow and reach out and impact everyone around us. And I, so I firmly believe that transforming the world begins with seeing yourself as holy. I love that. I love that. That's, that's so powerful and so beautiful. So turning inwards, seeing yourself as holy, sacred, beautiful, divine, um, develop, developing that intimacy and connection with yourself, knowing that your desires are good, allows you to start doing small things towards that desire, towards those desires, which manifests in bigger and bigger ripple effects outwards into the world. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah. And I, I, like, so if you think about like one day where you do spend every single day going moment by moment mm. saying, what do I desire? Mm. Like, what will give me pleasure? What do I desire? What, what's going to, fuel this erotic getting connected to that erotic desire within you mm. and like fully what is a full body want mm. and planning your day that way mm. there's no way your day is not going to be holy it's yeah, either going to be yeah. honoring your holiness or it's going to be honoring the holiness of other people yeah 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 I definitely see that and that's I feel like that's definitely been a part of my journey and it's funny because I feel that it kind of started just quite reactively, like, you know, um, I'm going to put myself first for once and I'm going to do all the things that please me and follow my bliss and, and all those things. And I needed to 
have that experience and, and doing those things, it definitely brought healing to me and fed a need inside of me. And as I progressed, I feel like that desire has naturally become more inclusive and more thoughtful of the environment and the world. Um, but I definitely see how detrimental it can be when you jump into, I want to take care of others, I want to bring peace, I want to bring justice or you know all those other things which women have kind of been programmed to think to be to think of others first to put others first and the consequence of that is you never answer the call within yourself you never feed yourself yes and then then we have and then I think there's such a problem right now with social media where we are getting stuck in this trap of just flipping through our phones, scrolling and scrolling yeah. and scrolling, seeing doomsday after doomsday posts, and our hearts are breaking, yeah. justifiably so, and we want to do something, and we don't know what to do, and we're not in tune with our wild woman, so we're not going to let her scream, mm. we're not going to let ourselves cry, we're not going to let ourselves grieve, because we've deemed that is not useful, and so then we're going to do little things, but then we immediately get burnout. So we write letters to our senators or, and I'm talking this from American experience, but we're, we're reaching out to our local representatives. We're petitioning, we're, we're doing all those things. And then eventually we get burnout because we're not actually feeling like we're making a dent and like it's exhausting because we're not actually checking in with ourselves Yeah. and ourselves need to take a nap ourselves needs to actually get another cup of coffee and step away for a moment ourselves needs to cry yeah and if we don't give ourselves space to do that we're just going to find ourselves struggling so much more to actually be able to make any type of difference wow you've covered so much and I'm very aware of time and I could probably talk to you a lot more um I know that before we jumped on you were speaking a little bit about resurrection and I would mm. love for you to talk about that what that means this kind of resurrection energy that you were you mentioned before right well there's so much that happens in deconstruction where we get very very aware of what pisses us off mm. and our grief and our anger and our rage and there's so much to grieve mm. and I'm you know I started deconstructing 10 years ago and one of the things that I sometimes think is because deconstruction was not such a popular thing there was a lot of lack and sadness that I didn't have anyone who understood what I was experiencing. That's real. But there was also a sense where I didn't have this echo chamber of rage around me that oftentimes the deconstruction world has, can become. And what I'm seeking, what I'm starting to want to talk about more is the concept of resurrection. And my book is called She Who Resurrects, The Story of Life, Death, and Resurrection Through the Divine Feminine. And it's sort of my version of a graduate thesis that I would never have been able to write in theology school. And it is my discussion about like where the divine feminine lies in Western tradition and how she is the narrative of resurrection and how we can resurrect in our own lives. And I talk about my own resurrection narrative in my own life. And it's a resurrection, not just from my own experience in my marriage, but it's also a story of resurrection from oppressive theology 
and mm. a theology that wanted to keep me very small and limited and weren't my worldview of who God is. Mm. And what I want to start to exploring is like, how can we start to resurrect? What is our resurrection narrative? And I have a program called Connecting Back to Your Body. And I feel like that's part of my like whisper of like beginning this process of how do we start to resurrect? Because even if you weren't raised in Christianity, we need to start resurrecting. We need to start resurrecting the divine feminine mm. and bringing her forward in a way that is going to actually be the call for liberation that we want in our lives. I mean, and I say liberation, I don't mean like, it, it includes that macro liberation from like all the problems in the world, but it includes your liberation from yours and everyone who's listening, liberation from like our own spaces and our own world. Mm. So that's what I'm coming to. Like, how do we resurrect out of this echo chamber and into a place of our own of our own yeah. freedom yeah I love that and I feel that that's a great place to kind of draw it all in because um as you know this whole series came about through wanting to share that there is more beyond deconstruction that there it that I feel like deconstruction in itself is is a milestone or a, a pit stop it's not meant to kind of be lived in um the the next step you call it resurrection for me I kind of see it as you know awakening to self returning to self and it's all kind of the same thing you know this higher version of ourself that has been buried underneath all of these things for so long so thank you so much for sharing that and um being present on this call as well. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute honor. I really hope that you've enjoyed today's episode. If you want to connect with me and continue the conversation, then you can go to my website, becomingbeyonddeconstruction.com. And if you're interested in supporting the work, then please feel free to buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash living from soul. My name is Florence Okwasogu and I'll see you on the next episode of Becoming You Beyond Deconstruction.
Thank you.